Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Norman Horn, and today I'm joined with uh, Doug Stewart and Nick Gosling, all of LCI, and we are excited to conclude uh, this mini-series in our podcast of how of our core values and, uh, and our mission statement and talking all about what that means to us and how our organization is going to be looking at this going forward. If you haven't gone through those podcasts yet and heard more about our core values, we encourage you to go back and check all of those out if you can. Uh, if you go to libertarianchristians.com and you can go back to all of our podcasts and listen to all of those there in whatever podcast aggregator that you're using. Uh, we highly encourage it. This will definitely bring you up to date on what we're all about. Of course, you can listen to this independently. We're going to be talking about a lot of different stuff today related to free market economics, and we'll get into that in just a sec. But you can definitely listen to this on its own and get something from it. But if you want to be fully up to date on everything, make sure and go back and listen to the prior episodes. So first off, let's just talk a little bit about and review about what our mission, our vision, and our core values are. LCI exists to equip the church to promote a free society. That is our mission as an organization. And our vision to do that is to create quality resources to equip Christians to spread that message of liberty in their churches, in their communities, in their families, with their friends, however they can do so. We want to be the go-to source for Christians to learn about a free society and how to spread that. And then, of course, we want to do that in such a way that is always consistent with our core values. These things that really unite us all as Christian libertarians, that we can all get behind and realize that this is the common ground that we all share, even if we have different faith backgrounds, different denominations, and different ways in which we express our faith in various ways. We hope that this is something that you can get behind and that you'll join us in affirming together. It's not a creed. It's not something that we say is required to be a Christian, per se, or anything like that. But this is the way that we want to talk as Christian libertarians to our friends and our families about what we think about policy, about what we think about historical theology and the way we think about our relationship with the state. So what are these core values? Well, in brief review, we've talked about how a Christian political philosophy should be informed by a holistic view of scripture, reason, and historical theology. We've also talked about how a free and civil society depends upon respect for the non-aggression principle. That's the bedrock of libertarianism at its core. We've talked about how individual liberty and the common good are not at odds. We've talked about how social institutions matter for human flourishing. And finally, we're going to talk today about how Christian theology affirms the essential tenets of free market economics. So with that, we're going to get into a discussion about all of this here. To start off with here, the key part of free market economics that should never be forgotten is an emphasis for private property. And this is something that is so ingrained into us as human beings. It flows out of just our our natural state of things that it's really important to kind of elucidate what are the principles behind it. And as you might expect, 
we do see this as being concordant with the way that Scripture presents human nature and the way that society should be organized. Respect for private property is absolutely essential for the structure of a free society and for peaceful interaction with each other. And there's a lot of things that are entailed by that. Where does this come from in Scripture? Is there, is there any direct affirmation? Well, not insofar as, you know, we could say there's no direct affirmation of the libertarian theory of property rights as we understand it through natural law. But what we do see are some very specific commands that if private property did not exist, wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. Things like thou shalt not steal, for instance, don't make any sense if property is meant to be generally held by everyone or is supposed to all be held by the state. If if not for private property, it wouldn't make any sense to say such a thing. Private property also, in effect, has to do with the way that we own our own bodies. That's important as well. And the biblical injunctions against violence against people, against slavery and things of that nature are, again, very important little pointers towards this idea of property rights and why that's important. So that's real quick introduction into it. So guys, where do you see in the Bible and in Christian history where it's important to affirm and recognize how private property uh, makes a difference for the structure of society? You know, one of my favorite episodes of our show is the second time we had Jeffrey Tucker on. I mean, I've enjoyed both times we've had Jeffrey Tucker on tremendously, but the second time we had him on, when he was talking about the parables of Jesus and how we can see free market economic principles sort of assumed in the parables. Now, he wasn't arguing that the main point of the parables is to teach about economics. That's not what he was saying. That's not the point. But he was saying that the way the parables are phrased and the context in which they are given sort of assumes a framework of property rights. And I think that was just a, a, a excellent observation. In fact, we had uh, at least one gentleman who is incorporating that interview into a book he's writing. Uh, so it, it, it's something that you don't really hear very often, but it's it's true. The parables of Jesus do assume a respect for property rights. Now, you know, we often hear from the historical side this claim that, oh, well, the the early Christians were socialistic. But that's really a misreading of the situation. I mean, we can look at examples of them sharing their resources and it's, okay, they, they held all things in common in the book of Acts. But that's not the same as socialism. That's a That's a voluntary sharing amongst the people of God. Socialism necessitates the state, and there was no state interfering with the way the church was doing this in, in the book of Acts. And so that's that's really where this argument sort of gets muddled, is if, if it's voluntary, it's totally fine in a voluntary system to share your resources or give to the needy. You know, I mean, these are these are good things. Uh, the 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 operative issue is when the state gets involved to manage the economy and force these things, and and that's really where we get into socialism. So to say the early church was socialist is is just not true. The success of the early church sharing all things in common hinged upon the fact that it was voluntary as opposed to uh, imposed. So, you know, for anybody who kind of says, well, we should have, you know, a society where we can share all things in common. I'm like, great. That sounds wonderful. In fact, that sounds really biblical. How are you going to do that without making people do it? 
because you have this problem of human nature. And that that's where it, that's kind of where it boils down for me. It's like, well, okay, sure, let's do that. What's your plan? Because you can't use violence because that's not Christian either. They don't usually have an answer for that. Of course, this is usually in my head that I'm having this conversation, but you know. That's a, that's a great point, Doug. And, and, you know, we've talked about on this show many, many times, uh, both with, with each other and with certain guests. I don't think the left has a satisfactory answer to this question of how, specifically the Christian left, of how they accomplish this vision that they are calling for, uh, apart from, from empire, apart from the state, because... I mean, it, it seems almost every solution that they come up with, it essentially involves the state, and yet at the same time, they're professing to be anti-empire. So it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Now, when you look at the early church model, uh, it, th- there is a sense in which it worked precisely because, like you were saying, it was voluntary, and there were, there were wealthy people in the early church who were, who were patrons and benefactors, to the poor, and they gave freely of their resources and to one another, and 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 that's a great thing, you know. That's that that's a Christian thing to do. But another thing we've pointed out on this show is that in order to give of your resources, you have to have resources, and resources require production. You know, one of the things I've pointed out a few times on various episodes of this show is that Aristotle said that you can't practice the virtue of magnanimity without having stuff. So really only a wealthy person is able to practice that virtue because they're the ones with the most stuff. So production has to be involved in order to get stuff, and therefore you have to have wealthy people in order to practice that virtue. Now, it really comes down to what, where's the heart at, and that's the question. If your heart is greedy and you're hoarding your stuff and you're using it all for your personal gain at everyone else's expenses, well, yeah, that, 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 that's a problem, right? That's sin. But having stuff and thanking God for it and being generous with it is precisely what, uh, what wealthy Christians are commanded to do. And just another quick historical example I want to point out from much, much later in church history is the Massachusetts Pilgrims uh, under John Winthrop. This was, uh, I believe, in the 17th century. When they, when they first came to the New World, they actually did embark on a very socialist experiment, and they tried to manage socialism essentially through the colonial government, but it was a complete failure. And if you if you read uh, the diary of John Winthrop or the journal, what whatever, uh, and and the other writings of his contemporaries, it becomes clear it was a it was a complete failure. And pr- precisely for all the same reasons that socialism always fails, uh, not not the least of which is that it has no functioning price system. And so when the state comes in to centrally manage these things and you have no price system to give signals of supply and demand, you wind up with shortages, you misallocate labor, and everything just sort of falls apart and everyone's poor and starves. So, and that, and that is explicitly not what was happening in the early church. In the early church, people were the, the, the poor Christians were being cared for precisely because those who were of means were giving freely apart from coercion. And there's a there's actually an interesting article 
uh, or an excerpt actually from Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty that uh, that really explains that situation in the uh, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony there. Uh, and we'll make sure and link to that in the in the show notes, you know, later on. Uh, that's definitely worth reading. It's it's a really fascinating perspective on what went on economically at the time. You know, it's interesting to me too that the Christian left, as you mentioned a little earlier, wanting to essentially use socialism in order to establish the more quote quote Christian way of running economics, I suppose. Uh, it, is particularly ironic because the only way that it really could work is through the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Like it would literally, the, the Holy Spirit would just have to change everybody's hearts at once in order to just make it happen, per se. But the, the irony of what they're asking for, though, is not the, ever the intervention of the Holy Spirit, but the intervention of the state to get what they want. I think that is an extremely misguided way of going about doing theology in a host of different ways. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of, uh, of the way that the Christian left tries to behave in this regard. I really hope that they'll figure out that this is not a good way of, of, of achieving the, uh, the, the ends that they're looking for. Yeah, it's like they want to have their cake and eat it, too, where yeah. like, they want to be nonviolent and they want to like protest against violence against you know, whether it's war or actually, you know, like police violence and things like that, which which we would applaud in that yeah, regard. That's fine. But at the same time, they're kind of like, yeah, but we want the society to be such and such a way. And the government ought to make people be this way or behave in the ways that make sense, you know, that, that we that are our values. And so it's like a little bit of Bible thumping uh, from a different angle. You know, it's like, hey, the Bible says that this is how society should run, and therefore, you know, the government ought to impose upon uh, impose well, it. And, and this is why it's so important to understand the principles of private property and voluntary exchange, because insofar as the left is concerned here, there are certain means of voluntary exchange and, and respecting private property that they think are appropriate. They, you know, things like not having police brutality. That's a great thing. But in other ways, they don't respect private property at all. And to be fair, the right sometimes has similar problems to where there are certain elements of respecting private property that they, they completely ignore. And then there are those in which they would they applaud. And you know what? We can, we can be applauding of the good things that they say on one side, but also be critical on the other. Uh, and that's because consistency matters. And inconsistency is definitely a problem in the way that they, in the way that both of those sides are operating. And that leads us to just talk more about voluntary exchange, which is something we talk about a lot in our podcast, on our website. If we talk to anybody at conferences, you know, we or, or we're defending libertarianism at all, is that voluntary exchange is is a key part of what libertarianism was all about. You know, one of the one of the early things that I thought about as I was you know, becoming libertarian was thinking through the scripture narrative as a whole. And just to pick a few key points that I kind of just think about when I think, well, God is in favor of us having a choice to exchange with people uh, in, in terms of like market economics kind of way. Now, obviously, we believe that all of life should be voluntary. But when we're talking about the free free market and and about economics, we believe that people should be able to engage in exchange if they, if they want to. And so, one of the things that I think about when I think through the whole of Scripture is, 
even in the very beginning, there is this idea of choice that you can choose to do the right thing or not. Uh, you can choose in uh, in Joshua 1, when they're about to enter the promised land, choose this day whom you will serve. There is this whole idea of choice. And th- it just seems to me that when you read the scripture, God is not forcing people to join God's program. Whatever you think God's program is for the world, you know, you could say that it's a program of nonviolence or it's a kingdom advancement, or you could say that God is rescuing people for salvation and all those things are true, but none of them are done through force. And you can kind of see this illustrated a bit in some of the agrarian parables is that when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, he's contrasting that you can't force a seed to grow. Uh, whereas if you think about like a plow coming in and plowing, that is that is rep- that can represent force. Uh, and so the kingdom of God doesn't come through force. It comes through letting nurture, uh, uh, nurturing and gardening and letting it grow naturally. Uh, and so that is something that the state cannot do because the state in and of itself is is there to exist and to extract uh, wealth from people who are who are productive. And so the other thing that I think about. Uh, you know, when I think through the whole of scripture is the whole idea of nonviolence. Now, we've talked about this in previous episodes and even in the previous episode on these core values about the non-aggression principle. But basically, the non-aggression principle applied <laughs> to economics is basically that we're free to to engage in exchange if we want to. And nobody can make us buy their product. Nobody can. We cannot make someone buy our product in an actual free market free market system. So in, in we, we would say that capitalism is the only quote-unquote system uh, that respects the non-aggression principle. Now, obviously, we need to talk about what that means. What does capitalism mean? And I think that's an important thing for us to talk about because when most people think of the word capitalism, depending on where you are on the spectrum, you might have a, eh, capitalism, what? Well, wait, no, I don't. I'm, I'm for free markets. Or you might say, oh, capitalism. Yeah, that, that's what I believe in. But pure capitalism. Or you might have the reaction of people on the left and be like, oh, capitalism, man, that's just like responsible for so much poverty and destruction uh, or, or something like that. So why don't we talk a little bit about what do we mean by capitalism and why is that an important word to use? One of the things we encounter fairly often are criticisms from other Christians who come from the left of the spectrum, if you will, and pr- primarily on this issue, on on capitalism and economics, and they make claims like, well, Jesus was a liberal, Jesus was a socialist, uh, Jesus would give everybody free health insurance. You know, I mean, you can d- pick your poison, you can slap whatever, you know, you want on that, uh, sort of thing to, to fit Jesus into the liberal box, according to these people. And of course, conservatives do this as well. So, I mean, we're not saying this is a liberal only thing, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's a common claim from the Christian left that, oh, Jesus was actually a liberal and was against capitalism. But as we've talked about, and as we write about, and as we've shown in our podcasts and our numerous publications, uh, that is that is not the case. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate to to refer to Jesus as either a liberal or a conservative. I think there are things about the kingdom of God that uh, are very grounded in tradition, and so in that sense you could say you're conservative, and there's other things that are very revolutionary, and so in that way you could say they are quote-unquote progressive, although not in the way that the left would use that term. But when we when we talk about capitalism, that word has just a, a negative connotation because of decades of propaganda from 
actual communists. And what we mean by capitalism is simply the free market system in which producers are able to utilize their wealth to produce other stuff and trade and exchange it freely. And it's been proven time and time again, empirically throughout history, that this is the only way that you lift people legitimately long-term out of poverty and produce sustainable growth and wealth for civilization. Crony capitalism is when a select group of elites who are always connected in some way to the state or the empire use that connection to destroy their competitors and establish for themselves a false monopoly on the basis of their connection to the state. Now, there are some companies that are quote-unquote monopolies simply because they're the best and everyone buys their stuff and they make a ton of money because they produce the best stuff at the best price. That's not a real monopoly in the Rothbardian sense because at any time, if they cease to produce the best stuff at the best price, a competitor can come along and take away their market share. A real monopoly can only arise because of the state. When crony elites who are connected to the state use that privilege to prevent competition, which is expressly anti-market and the exact opposite of capitalism. It's, it's oligarchy. It's what you find in socialist systems and fascist systems and communist systems. So when we say capitalism, Really, we're just talking about the ability to do what you want freely with your stuff. And this is a, a perfectly Christian principle, and it's the only way that people can actually be lifted out of the cycle of poverty. Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah, Nick, I almost wish we didn't have to even use the term crony capitalism per se because it almost gives it this veneer of it's sort of like well it's capitalism minus one point or something like that but that's not even true it's the complete antithesis to cap capitalism true capitalism and not in the no true scotsman fallacy sense this is a this is you know purely definitional and and i recognize that you know people still want to use crony capitalism even libertarians use it fine i just prefer the word cronyism personally that's just that's just my personal preference there i don't want to give an inch to the to the to uh credence to that sort of way of thinking yeah cronyism is probably the better word to use i i think in deference to those who use crony capitalism is they're like well it's mostly capitalist but what has infiltrated it is the cronyism and therefore it's not it's not real. It's not actual. And it's still a threat to it. Yeah. I, I just don't even like to, I don't even like to give it that much. <laughs> That's personal preference though. Uh, nonetheless, the point is that we were vehemently opposed to such things because it's the antithesis of voluntary exchange and respect for private property rights. Uh, because, you know, again, our, our, our goal here is to is to you know recognize that we that theft is wrong and in order for crony capitalism or cronyism to be a thing they have to build it on the back of legalized theft that which the government does and grants to them on the backs of other people who did produce something prior and they're getting it taken away from them 
this is a you know this is an interesting like juxtaposition here too because on the one hand we have this class of within society that has the capacity to just take from people wantonly for their own devices and whether they're part of the government itself as a as a bureaucrat or a politician or whatnot or if they're uh, an out an outstretch of the government in the in the way that many uh, cronyist organizations are both of those are really bad and that that's one that is one way that you can gain resources is uh, is through the, the political means but the productive means the moral means of gaining resources is is what we promote obviously that's you know just the free that's free market operation voluntary exchange of what you value for what someone else values and uh, and that exchange is good and one of the things that is really important to remember is that this way that god set it up through just the way that he created the, the universe itself demonstrates that wealth is a gift from god and a tool it is something that is attained through moral means and thus we should be thankful that this is a measure of how we're able to serve other people in, uh, in by providing what they want for a price that they care about and that they think is reasonable. And, uh, and thus, the attained wealth that one gets from such a thing should be considered both a, an act of service and, the, and a gift and, and a tool to be used. Wealth isn't bad in this respect. In many respects, it's very good. Although we could also say, in a way, it's neither good nor bad. It's really how one acquires it. And, and again, as Nick and Doug have really stated earlier, we as Christians are expected to both acquire resources in this way that are in, by moral means and to utilize that which we have attained uh, to advance God's kingdom. And we can't do that without being productive at times. So that's, that's really important to remember here is that this all comes with the backdrop of wealth being a gift, a service, and a tool. Uh, whereas those who would subvert that, whether that be whatever type of political means that looks like, uh, are those that are trying to destroy wealth. So this is why we this is why we are vehemently against taxation and regulation, uh, because those things destroy wealth. And if we're trying, and if these things exist and uh, to destroy wealth, it's going to discourage uh, further production efforts in many respects. It discourages innovation uh, and, and, and helps to centralize power. This is a tremendous problem. This is a subversion of the way that the kingdom is supposed to run, the subversion of the way that God has set things up to operate in the world and that we can flourish. These are not good things. <laughs> and it is really the point, is that these are, these are not good things that we are to support. Uh, and so whether it's the left or the right, for that matter, we've, we've named them multiple times already today, but let's name them again, whether it's the left or the right calling for taxation in order to just get stuff done because that's what we got to do. We got to make the hard decisions and help the people that uh, in the way that, we, that the government says they should, or we got to go and fight this or that war or whatever. No, that ain't right. We should know better than that. Something that surprised me in the past couple of years is to learn in some of my reading and just kind of understanding the history of how did we get to where we got in terms of a flourishing, uh, you know, Western culture where we have basically risen out of poverty at such a rapid rate that we're now able to complain about other things like inequality or that some people aren't rising as fast as others. And one of the things that has struck me is that it's very odd to me that a couple hundred years ago, 
innovation, the idea of innovation was held as unorthodox, was held as against the natural order, and was discouraged. It was not, and it wasn't just discouraged, it was like anathema. And so Deirdre McCluskey actually says that this is like the core reason why we have a prosperous uh, Western culture and why we have human flourishing at such a rapid level is because people were allowed to have a go. They were allowed to innovate. There's always been innovation, but they weren't always allowed to market it and bring it and take it to a market where other people could be bettered by their innovation. It was kind of uh, kept private. And so our world has changed because innovation is was was then actually allowed and then revered. I mean, we, we think of innovation as like, if you're not innovating, you're you're dying, you know? Uh, if, if you own a business or even people who just have smartphones, they battle and argue with other people who have different brand smartphones as to like which company is innovating faster. So we value innovation in such a way that it's hard to remember that this actually wasn't normal hundreds of years ago on a large scale. And so when we say that taxation and regulation tend to destroy wealth and discourage innovation, it, it goes beyond just the taxation and regulation. It also talks to the rhetoric and the attitudes behind why we tax and why we regulate, uh, because we want to, you know, the, the people who argue for more taxation and more regulation, they're not they're not going to say that they're against innovation. But what they don't realize is that the cost of such regulation is innovation uh, or a lot a, a loss of innovative power. I mean, we've actually talked about this on our podcast with respect to intellectual property. Uh, this is one example of how intellectual of how regulation hampers innovation and intellectual property in in one particular way and there are many others it gets innovators focused on the legality and the regulatory structure instead of just continuing to innovate and that's just one example there's there's many others it's a big deal wealth is a big deal i've often said provocatively you know when we talk about the church and things like that you know i grew up hearing you know you know god doesn't need our money because god owns everything or something like that you know it's it's thing no god does need our money because money is something that we use to enhance our lives and i say that in a produ- in a provocative way but it's true wealth is a tool wealth exists somebody has the wealth if you're a Christian and you have wealth, and, and I don't mean wealth as in like you have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, but we have a wealth of a lot of different kinds of things in a lot of different ways, we have the ability to change other people's lives. In some sense, on a global historical level, we could argue that anybody who lives in a capitalist system is wealthy because we have the opportunity to actually freely engage in trade. Yes, we know there's a lot of restrictions and regulations and so forth, but generally speaking, we have a lot of opportunity in our capitalist society to actually affect change. And so we can bemoan all all we want about the taxation regulation that we're that we have and how much we have to write to the government when it's tax time and so forth, but we do have a place where we have something we can offer the world uh, and that's that's a privilege. And it's a way that we can use wealth as a tool. And with that, we can conclude here our little series on our core values here at Libertarian Christian Institute. Uh, We're so glad that you have spent your time uh, coming with us along this journey of learning about this, and we hope that you gain something from it. We're going to come back and refer to these core values frequently here to to kind of continue letting you know that these are on our mind and that we're going to be, you know, working toward being ever more consistent with all of these principles and as as we proceed down this journey of liberty altogether. And we're glad that you're here with us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.